Good morning, friends. Welcome to Cross Point Church. My name is Rusty Mackey. I am the director of men's discipleship here at Cross Point. And if you're joining us here in person or online, we just want to say welcome and thank you for being here. We recognize that it can be hard to come into a church. You may have all kinds of reasons that make that hard. Uh, it might be a long, big part of your story. It might be that this morning was just challenging to get out the door. So whatever it took for you to get here today, we're so grateful for you. And we would love for you to be really enveloped into the beautiful family that is Cross Point Church. And so if you are still in need of taking some steps towards that, I would encourage you to uh, use the QR code in the seat back in front of you. Go to thisiscp.church, click on that next step button, and let us know how we can get you more connected to this church by filling out a Connect card. All right, before we get into our text for today, as we continue on our journey toward the cross, I want to start us out with an imaginative exercise. So whatever helps you to imagine and get more into your imagination, I would encourage you to do that now. Feel the freedom to close your eyes. For some of you, that may not feel comfortable, so you can stare off into oblivion at the ceiling. But whatever helps you, let's go ahead and begin to imagine. And I want to invite you in this moment to imagine a person who loves you deeply. Imagine someone with whom you feel safe and love standing in front of you. Imagine them smiling at you. Look into their eyes and see their delight as they look at you. Maybe even hear them speaking words of love over you. And as you imagine that person, give yourself the freedom to notice what you're experiencing. Notice any emotions that arise. Notice any sensations in your body. Just really give yourself the freedom to enjoy those feelings for just a few moments. You may open your eyes. All right, let's do a thing that you may not have experienced in a sermon before, and that's I'm going to ask you questions. So what was that like? Let's get some crowd participation. Someone share with me what you noticed. Yes. What was that? No judgment. Absolutely. Beautiful. A feeling of no judgment. Somebody else, what did you notice? What did you feel? What was that? Pure joy. What does pure joy feel like? Very, very good. Yes. Yes, it does. Good, good definition. Yes, ma'am. Calmness. What does calm feel like? Safety. Beautiful. Well done. Somebody else? Yes. Started smiling. Yes. Perfect segue. Why, thank you. So I've done this exercise with many people before and in many groups. And one thing that is universal is that as people start to imagine someone that they feel loved and safe with, they smile they relax into their seats. They feel a sense of calm, a sense of acceptance with no judgment. It shows up in your posture. Now, if I were to, and I have done this with groups, I'm sparing you this morning. If I were to say, now on the flip side, close your eyes again, 
and imagine someone who has hurt you, someone who has betrayed you. Your smile would turn to a frown. You would scrunch your forehead, possibly. Some of you would get big in your seats like you're ready to fight, and some of you would get really small like you just want to run away. And the reason that I started the sermon out with this exercise is to teach you two things experientially. First and foremost, you are an embodied soul. And so what happens to you in your inner world, what impacts your soul has a literal impact on your body because you're an embodied soul. Also, God has created you as a relational soul. If I had said, sit with me and let's imagine a beautiful tree. (laughs) you would not have had the same experience. You may have experienced some sense of like, oh, that's beautiful and that's nice, but it would not have been nearly as palpable, nearly as strong of an experience as imagining someone who loves you with whom you feel safe. Friends, today we are going to talk about the betrayal of Jesus. It's a hard text. And as you hear his story, you may find yourself thinking about past betrayals, past hurts. So I want to give you the freedom part. Another reason I did that exercise was so that you can have an anchor point. So if at any point in this sermon, you start to find yourself feeling overwhelmed by past pain, just feel the freedom to tune me out for a couple seconds and go back to imagining that person that you feel loved and safe with. And then tune back into the sermon. And this will help all of us to stay present to the amazing word that Jesus has for us today. Because Jesus in this passage, he really gives us, what we get here is a master class from the master himself. A master class on how to respond to betrayal. We're going to see that Jesus responds by speaking to three different groups. He responds to Judas. He responds to Peter, and he responds to the crowds. He responds with a loving response, with a nonviolent response, and with a truthful response. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start in verse 47, and we're going to read this whole passage. If you're able, if you're willing, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Uh, You also have that QR code in the front of the seatbacks in front of you. You can go to thisiscp.church, and you can, uh, with that, find the text there as well. Hear the word of the Lord, this tragic, tragic account of the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, Do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. 
Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Crosspoint, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me and you may be seated. Jesus, um, wow, what a, what a text, what a, what a passage, what a hard text. Lord, I pray that you would guide us today as we work through this text. Spirit of God, would you speak to us in ways that we need to be spoken to? Would you challenge us in areas that we need to be challenged? But Spirit of God, who is the great comforter, would you also comfort those for whom this topic is tender? Lord, would the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you in this time? Do your work. Do your work. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, so as I mentioned earlier, we have these three responses from Jesus, and we're going to start out with Jesus's response to Judas, which is a loving response. Now, look again at verse 48 to 49 to see the actual betrayal here, okay? So verse 48, now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And then verse 49, look at it with me. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Now, betrayal, if you've lived long enough, if you've experienced someone attacking you, someone betraying you, someone wishing not to help you, but to hurt and harm you, you don't need me to tell you that betrayal is painful. It hurts. And part of the pain of betrayal is that it's just so confusing. We notice here in this text, if you go back to verse 47, we see Judas, one of the 12, right? So uh, Matthew's highlighting that this is one of Jesus's closest followers, right? And it's confusing. It should confuse us. Why would Judas betray Jesus? And then in verse 48, he's no longer called Judas. He's called the betrayer. He takes on this identity. He takes on this role for himself. We go on to see in the text that that he says, I will kiss him, right? And so this sign of love, intimacy, hospitality in their culture, Judas twists that in order to harm Jesus. And then there's finally another shock in this text where he says, greetings, rabbi. In Matthew's text in In the Gospel of Matthew, rabbi is only used by non-followers of Jesus. 
And so, as with all betrayals, it's shocking because it comes from someone you didn't expect. And that's highlighted here for us. Now, with the pain, with the confusion, with the shock of betrayal, we all can respond in multiple different ways. But I want to highlight two ways that we respond as people. On the one hand, we can view ourselves as the victim. So in the victim posture, there's no room for nuance. There's no room to look at the situation and to say, well, did I have a part to play in this? I'm feeling betrayed, but is that the truth of reality? No, when you feel betrayed, you get flooded with anger. That anger leads you to want to fight. (laughs) And then you say, well, they're the problem. And understandably, they may be the problem. (laughs) But with a victim mentality, that anger is blinding you to the fact that, hey, maybe I'm pointing out the speck in my brother or sister's eye and I'm missing the two by four in my own. So that's one thing that we can do when we feel betrayed is we can go into a victim stance. On the other side of the spectrum, we can go into a villain stance, viewing ourselves as the villain. You might have the unique ability to see the nuance in situations and to see every side of a story. And you may even look at the betrayal and see, oh, I can see where they're lying, where they're trying to hurt me, where this is wrong. But there's also some half-truth there. And maybe I am the problem in this scenario. And so rather than being flooded with anger as the victim over here as the villain, you're flooded with shame. The victim condemns the other, but the villain condemns himself. Now, what's the problem with both of those responses? (laughs) Where's the focus? It's on me. And it doesn't account for the whole scenario. But how does Jesus respond to Judas when Jesus has clearly done nothing to deserve this treatment? How does he respond? Look with me at verse 50. And let this just be a bomb that goes off in your mind and soul. Then, verse 50, Jesus said to him, friend, friend, do what you came to do. Now, some scholars will argue that Jesus is being sarcastic. Oh, friend, do what you came to do. I don't think that's what's happening here, though. I believe what is happening here is Jesus still views Judas as a friend. Isn't that (laughs) mind-boggling? Yes, this is a masterclass in how to respond to betrayal and relational pain. And I hope we glean some things from the life of Jesus. But I hope also with this sermon that you just see the beauty of Jesus. I hope you walk away amazed by Jesus. And if you've been betrayed and you know all the emotions that flood your system because of that, you will be amazed by Jesus that he can look at Judas and call him friend and mean it. Jesus is beautiful and Jesus shows us what human flourishing looks like. Jesus, in essence here, is practicing what he preached back in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 47, I love the uh, message translation, and we actually should have that up for you here on the screen. So that'll come up here in just a second. From the message, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 47. Is it there? Oh, it's broken over here. Thank you, friends. I appreciate that. All right. Well, let me turn around and, and see it here. All right. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend and his unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you. Hear that again. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the supple moves of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. Next slide, please. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless the good and bad the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? <laughs> Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. Friends, this is what we see Jesus doing here in this passage. He is loving his enemy. And that's amazing. And we have to ask, how? How do you do that, Jesus? And this is where it's so helpful for us. And we must connect this week's sermon to last week's sermon. Because if you're going to love like Jesus, you have to learn how to pray like Jesus. <laughs> if you're going to sacrificially love your enemies the way that Jesus sacrificially loves, then you have to learn how to surrender to the Father in the way that Jesus surrenders. These things have to happen. Uh, as we are going to move on and see the other disciples' response, we see a direct correlation. Jesus' ability to love is because of his struggle in prayer, whereas the other disciples' inability to love well is because of their prayerlessness. They were sleeping. And so what we learn here is a powerful truth that we need to really struggle with God, wrestle with God, surrender our lives to God. And what do we need to surrender to him? Well, when we surrender to God's goodness, his power, and his wisdom, then and only then can we sacrificially love like Jesus. And you need to know about yourself that, that all of us have a tendency to believe and accept one or maybe two of these aspects of who God is. And we all have a tendency to struggle to embrace one or two of them. But they all have to go together. Because if you're struggling to surrender to and embrace the fact that God is good, then why on earth would you go to him in the first place? Or maybe you believe, you're like, yes, I know, I have shored up my faith that God is good, and yet you don't think he's powerful enough, then why would you ask him to do anything for you? Or maybe you're like, I know God's good, I know he's powerful, but is he wise? Jesus looks 
to his father, his good father in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays because he knows that he is powerful enough, and yet he trusts his wisdom to say, not my will be done, but your will be done. And it's that surrender that frees Jesus to then love Judas. So friends, how are you doing when it comes to surrendering to God's goodness, his power, and his wisdom in your life so that when the attacks come, you are ready to sacrificially love? It's an important question. Jesus responds with love. We're going to see next that the disciples don't do very well here. (laughs) So we see next a nonviolent response in verses 51 to 54. I'm going to read a little bit of 51 here. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, the other gospels tell us this is Peter, stretch out his hand. That's Old Testament language, right? So it's almost as if Peter thinks like, I'm a prophet of old and I'm about to bring vengeance, right? He stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We just got excited, right? I mean, this is an exciting moment in the story. Uh, and I'm always just imagining like, what did what did that look like? Was this like an over the head, like, I'm going to like try to chop you in half kind of a deal. And it like sliced the ear and then like buried into his shoulder. I know we just got really gruesome and graphic, but it's in the Bible. So we're going to talk about it. So, or was it like, he's trying to chop off his head, you know, and then he does like a matrix move and it like slices the ear off. Like what's happening here? Or is it that um, Peter is a fisherman and He's like really incompetent, you know? Uh, Yeah. And you see up there on the screen, you know, Happy New Year, uh, which is pointing out the fact that it doesn't say it in this text, but Jesus actually does heal the man's ear. Uh, It would have been better if it was like January to do this, but this sermon's so heavy. I'm just trying to bring any humor in anywhere that I can. So, Happy New Year. that's that's the power of images. You'll never be able to unsee this after this sermon. You may not remember anything else from the sermon, <laughs> but you're going to remember Happy New Year. All right, rock and roll. So let's keep going. Uh, so the, the beauty, though, the fact, you know, Matthew doesn't highlight that Jesus heals his ear, but the beauty of it that we learn about that in the other Gospels is this. Why did Jesus heal his ear? Well, yeah, it was a nice thing to do. I mean, the poor guy <laughs> poor guy got his ear cut off, which I guess if you show up in the middle of the night with clubs and swords, you expect that sort of thing could happen. Uh, but Jesus heals the guy's ear. But even more than that, if Jesus had not healed his ear, they could have arrested Peter. They could have taken Peter before a court of law and said, look, he attacked this guard and he needs to be put in prison. And yet, now they still could arrest Peter after the... They could. He did it. But then when G, when Peter stood in front of a court of law, there would have been no evidence <laughs> to condemn him. And isn't that the gospel? <laughs> All of us someday, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. The scriptures teach this very clearly. 
And the accuser will be there and he will say, look at their life. Look at everything that he did. Look at everything that she did. Look at all of their transgressions where they went over the line in thought, word, and deed. Condemn them. And your father in heaven will look at you and say, I see nothing. Because Jesus took our punishment on the cross. And the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus heals us. And that's good news. That's good news. And so Peter does what Peter does, which is acts impulsively. And then in verse 52, we see Jesus' response to him. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. (laughs) For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So here's Peter with his display of power. You know, he's this fisherman who's like pretty incompetent with a sword and he's doing his best. And Jesus says, hey, hey guys, I I don't need 12 disciples to protect me in this situation because I have 12 legions of angels at my disposal. Now, we don't exactly know how many soldiers were in a Roman legion, but the guesstimations are pretty clear that it's around 70,000. So Jesus is saying, Peter, you want to display a power, man? I've got power, but I'm going to use it a lot differently than you are inclined to use it. And, and here's the thing that we have to realize. You know, Peter is in the moment of a trauma response. We actually, you know, when, when we get attacked, when pain comes, we can have that fight or flight, right? So we see Peter goes into fight here. Later on down in verse 56, all of the disciples will go into flight. They'll leave Jesus. They'll run away. And we have to recognize that Peter's trauma response has a worldview. <laughs> Peter's impulse to fight is coming out of a deeply ingrained story. And that story is that he's a Jewish man. He is a person who is in a, minor- in a minority group who is living under the thumb, the oppression of Rome. And before that, The Jews, this minority group, they lived under the pressure and the oppression of Greece. And then before that, they lived under the pressure and the persecution of the Persians, right? So they are a people group who have had generation upon generation, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of abuse, oppression, and generational trauma. They not only have all that going on, all that's in the mix for Peter, as well, they have this story of hope that they recite again and again and again saying a Messiah will come who will liberate us from our oppressors. Now for Peter in his view, and this was very common in the day, when he heard Messiah, he thought a political conquering warlord. And so in this moment when Jesus is going to be arrested, Peter has this fight impulse that takes him over, but it's coming out of a very deeply ingrained story. 
that's saying the revolution is starting. (laughs) I'm going to kick this thing off. I'm going to chop off this guy's ear and Jesus is going to rise to the challenge. And what he misses, again, we have to connect this week with last week. Last week taught us how to love God through prayer. This week teaches us how to love our neighbor through peacekeeping. Love God, love neighbor through prayer, through peacekeeping. And yet Peter is so wrapped up in a story that's not the gospel that it leads him to act in an ungospel-like way. And I hope you're connecting the dots, but I'm going to connect them for you. This should terrify you because Peter thinks he's right. (laughs) Peter has twisted and distorted his view of Jesus and what Jesus is about to the degree that when he acts in this way, that's contrary to the way of Jesus, he thinks he's actually doing it on behalf of Jesus. And again, to connect some more dots for us, we live in a cultural moment where we have synchronized the gospel. We have conflated the gospel with politics. And you think about the political left, the far political extreme left. You think about the far political extreme right. And haven't we seen violence in those spaces? In some cases, we've seen physical violence. And in other cases, there may not be physical violence, yet there is a contempt and a disdain and a hatred for anyone who doesn't agree with their ideology. And Jesus is saying here, hey, put your sword away. (laughs) Put it back in its place. Notice there is a place for the sword. If you want to know what that is, go home and read Romans chapter 13. It tells you where the place of the sword is. But Jesus is saying, hey, when it comes to advancing the kingdom of God, the sword is not the way. Violence is not the way. And historically, we look at the Crusades, we look at the Inquisitions, we look at all the holy wars throughout history, and we can see they don't go well. (laughs) Now, friends, I'm pretty sure none of you have been one who carries out an Inquisition or does literal violence to someone else in the name of Jesus. but. I do want to just put before you the question, have you in your social media presence, have you in your words, in conversations with people, have you, maybe not even in what you say, but in your heart of hearts, yes, you have not murdered, but have you hated in your heart? Have you looked on contempt for those who disagree with you and your politics? And again, remember the challenge here. Peter thinks he's right, and it's so easy for us to think we're right too. And we have to have the humility to say, Lord, have I made an idol out of my politics? Idolatry is the uh, giving of oneself to. It's the loving, the valuing, the prizing, the, the putting above of something above the person of Jesus. An idol is something that you look to to save you and to satisfy you. That's what an idol is. And we fight for our idols. (laughs) And we often will sacrifice others at the altar of our idol. Hear this quote by Andy Crouch about idolatry. 
This is what he says. The first thing any idol takes from its worshipers are their relationships. So the best early warning signs that you're drifting into idolatry in your work, alcohol, politics, romance novels, or whatever your drug of choice may be, your first warning sign is your closest relationships begin to decay. This passage is hard because thinking about betrayal is hard. Um, This whole week I avoided working on this sermon because it was touching on pain for me and I ended up doing a lot of house projects instead. So Rachel thanks you for this sermon because like literally projects that have been put off for like a year got done this week. So that's good. But... (laughs) Do you feel me? (laughs) This stuff is painful, right? Talking about betrayal, thinking about betrayal, thinking about that pain is hard. But Jesus doesn't just sympathize with us in that. He challenges us on how we respond to being attacked. And he says, there is a different way. Friends, are you following the way of Jesus? Are you bringing a sword into your relationships that is destroying your relationships? Or are you bringing the peace of Christ? I really encourage you this week to take time and to muster some humility to ask, Lord, where am I blind? And where do I need to repent and turn back to you? All right, last point, a truthful response. Now, if you were, if you're following along, it's like, okay, how do I respond to betrayal? Well, First, we should have a loving response like Jesus, where we love our enemies. Second, we should have a nonviolent response, where we choose not to bring the sword, not to try to use our power to one-up one another, but to love one another. And if you stop there, the problem with that is you can then conclude, well, if someone attacks me, if someone betrays me, if someone is seeking my harm, then I just need to like let that go and say, well, God bless you. Jesus loves you, right? But that's not where Jesus stops. (laughs) So this last section is really important. Look with me at verse 55. And what we're going to see here is Jesus does not resist the crowd. He reasons with the crowd. Such an interesting nuance. He doesn't fight back and he doesn't just let them trample all over him but he reasons with them. And what does he say? Look at verse 55. At that hour. Stop there. All right. So all you Bible scholars, Matthew up to this point has been saying again and again, Jesus' hour had not come. Jesus' hour had not come. Jesus' hour had not come. This is the first time. Chapter 26, verse 55. At that hour. Jesus' hour has come. To sacrifice for the sins of the world. To journey to the cross. And what does he say? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Jesus doesn't resist, 
but he also doesn't let them run all over him. He calls out their hypocrisy. He calls out the evil of what they're doing. He calls out that this is wrong, that it's shady, that they're acting in a cowardly way. One time I was in the process of going into a hard conversation and one of my um, older pastor friends, mentors, Scotty Smith, he was on the phone with me beforehand and he said, Rusty, remember, remember that you are a foot washer and not a doormat. Remember that as a Christian, you're a foot washer and not a doormat. And friends, that tension is so hard to walk, isn't it? It's so hard to stand up for yourself, say, this is wrong. Uh, I have some boundaries. You know, I don't hang around people who treat me this way. To also have that posture of love, that posture of nonviolence. It's a hard balance to walk, but Jesus walks it. He calls what they're doing evil and wrong. There was another instance in my life where I found myself being slandered. And there were some very clear lies that were being told about me in that instance. And because for me at that time, I found myself in that villain camp where I just got flooded with shame and I could see the new, there was half truths in what they were saying. And I was like, well, yeah, what they're saying is wrong and a lie, but I also could have done a better job and I contributed and, and I just was getting eat up inside and I had no peace and it was just a terrible moment. And I got on the phone with a, one of my best friends and I was sharing with him the inner turmoil that I was experiencing at being attacked in this way. And my friend stopped me mid-sentence and he said, Rusty, what they are saying, those are lies. And what they are doing is wrong. It's evil. It's not to draw near you in relationship, but it's to harm you and your family. And it is not right. And in that moment, as my friend spoke those truthful words to me, it just lifted a burden. Like, oh yeah, yeah, you're right. That is wrong. And I don't have to condemn them. I can entrust them to Jesus. I can ask God to forgive them. I can forgive them. I can pray for their welfare. (laughs) And I've done all those things, but I also don't have to carry the weight of self-condemnation. And this reminds us, if we were to fast forward over to the book of 1 Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians, we, we get really Paul kind of meditating on the way of Jesus here and how Jesus responds when being attacked. And, and he's kind of giving us some wisdom, some mantras in terms of that. When it comes to this letter as well, it's helpful for us because if you remember in the church at Corinth, Paul had established this church. And then what happened? Some false teachers came in and they started slandering Paul, speaking lies about him. And they they poisoned the well, so to speak, so that this church no longer trusted Paul. So Paul's writing to them and look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Let's pause right there. (laughs) 
oh, that we could have this attitude. (laughs) I mean, isn't that amazing? Paul says, oh, you have misrepresented me. You have misunderstood me. You have attacked me. You have judged me. That's a small thing for me. I'm not going to lose much sleep over that. It's like water off of a duck's back. (laughs) Wouldn't it be amazing to live like this? Look at what he goes on to say. In fact, I do not even judge myself. All right, so notice what's happening here. So when we get attacked, we can take that role of victim. You're the problem. We can condemn others. Paul says, I don't have to do that. It's a small thing to me. Or we can take the role of the villain and we can condemn ourselves. I'm the problem. I'm the reason that I'm being treated this way. Paul says, I don't even condemn myself. I don't play those games. What does he go on to say? Look at verse four. I am not aware of anything against myself. He has a clear conscience. It's kind of like him saying, yeah, I mean, I wasn't perfect, but I did my best. My motives were in the right place, right? Did my best. He goes on to say, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. His focus is not on himself. It's not on those who are attacking him. His focus is on Jesus. Um, This is not up on the slides, but just listen to it. Verse five, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Friends, when you are attacked, when you are betrayed, you can have a loving response. You can have a nonviolent response. You can also have a truthful response. Why? Because of Jesus. There will be a day when we all stand in the courtroom of God before the judge of the universe. And the accuser will be there accusing and Jesus will be there pleading for us. And on that day, friends, we can stand with confidence because our Jesus, our judge is filled with mercy. We can stand with confidence because our Jesus is filled with compassion for those who sin again and again and again. We can stand in the courtroom of condemnation and not be condemned because Jesus will look at you and he will say, friend. He'll call you friend. It's not because of the works of your hands. It's not because of what you've done. In fact, if we're all honest, we do exactly what the disciples do. We betray Jesus. We run away. We are unfaithful. And yet he looks us in the eye and calls us friend. As we pray, I invite you to close your eyes. And again, I would encourage you to get that image of the person that loves you most, that you feel safe with, 
as much as you're able, just tap back into the experience of being in their presence, what that feels like. And taking some deep breaths, I invite you, if it feels good, if it feels right, to replace that person in your imagination with Jesus. And with that recognition that we fail him, we are unfaithful to him, we betray him, we deny him, see the smile on his face. See the delight in his eyes as he looks at you and hear him calling you friend. Jesus, we are unworthy of your love. And yet you love us still. Would we today and this week be deeply, deeply impacted by your sacrificial love to die on a cross in our place so that we could be your friend? We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.